what does it mean for God to reign above it all? I want us just to look real quick at the, go back to the very beginning in the creation story. Many of us are very familiar with this. We know that in seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. And we look specifically, we see that on day one through six, God spoke the world into being. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the land, the sea, and all that inhabits it. And what does it say he did on the seventh day? We see in Genesis chapter two, verse three, it says, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creation that he had done. Of course, this begs the question, okay, God that just created the universe, does he need to rest? <laughs> I mean, any of us, we wouldn't, we'd be really tired. As we look at this, and we might not fully get it just reading through it quickly, but in ancient times, it would be very clear to them because in these times, and not just the Bible, but others that believed in different types of gods, they knew that a God doesn't rest on a bed. A God doesn't rest on a couch. The God of the universe rests on a throne. It's not just the Bible that shows this. There are other ancient writings that give clue to this, but just one verse here in the Bible in Psalm 132, verse 14, it says, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. take too long in the creation story to see how us humans kind of screw things up a bit. And it has to do with instead of saying, God, you are on the throne, he said, you can have anything in the garden except don't eat from the tree of good and evil. And us humans said, okay, we see God in that, give us that command. But we want to know, you know, more knowledge than what was given to us. So they slightly reordered creation so that they themselves would be sitting on the throne. And it doesn't, it's not too hard to see how we do this in our own lives as well. And they can be good things. I mean, we look at our jobs or maybe a business that we own and we work so hard and it might start as giving God all the glory, but we work at it, we work at it, and then we obsess about the finances of it and all of this. And then all of a sudden, we're take, it becomes our idol and we're taking God off the throne and putting our job or our business or our family or whatever it may be. If we look at pornography, we're taking something that God has created to be pure and innocent and we, are, we manipulate creation and we change it so that we're ripping God off the throne and putting ourselves there to see creation not as God intended it, but something that gives us the pleasure and us the glory. We have a saying in the, the Sears household that the kingdom of God is anywhere God is made king. This is what the Sabbath is all about. Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday. And as we're here at the beginning of the week, it's time for us to step back once again and say, God, where have we taken you off the throne? Where have we put ourselves there? So God, this morning, we make that our prayer. And as we sing this chorus one more time, we declare that you reign above it all. You didn't just create 
the world and us and just set back and to watch, but you gave us purpose and meaning by being our king, by sitting on the throne. So Lord, we declare that you reign above all of our worries. Lord, you reign above anxiety. Lord, you reign above our financial struggles. Lord, you reign above cancer. You reign above it all. You have from the beginning and you will to the end. And we know that this is what you desire, Lord. We give you all the glory this morning. It's in your name. Amen. So as Sean mentioned, doing something just a little bit different this morning. And I'll have to admit, I'm really excited about this. I've wanted to do this for a long time. And I brought it up to Craig. And he said, I think there's a good place for this to fit. Because as we're looking in this sermon series, where we're learning about the heart of God through the life and lessons from David, we see that David had a heart for worship. I mean, he absolutely had a heart for worship. So we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel. So if you want to open your Bibles to the beginning of 2 Samuel, and we're going to have some scripture on the screen as well. But just to set the context for where we are in the life of David, this is after um, Saul was king. In fact, Saul is dead now, and David is now king over Israel. And things are going great for him, conquering the Philistines, doing all of this stuff. The Ark of the Covenant, which represents God among his people, is with David. And you see in chapter 5 or 6, yes, at the end of chapter 5, it says David defeats the Philistines and he conquers Jerusalem. And so now David is essentially moving him, like his house and everything else, to Jerusalem. And he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, throughout this service today, we're going to talk about some specifics about worship too. And I just want to say first that worship can be anything. Anything that we do and give glory and point to God can be considered worship. But we're going to hone in a little bit on some of those cultural and stereotypical types of worship. Of course, today in the, in the West, in this age, one of those cultural stereotypical forms of worship is singing praise songs, you know, with maybe with a full band and here at church. Back in this time of David, kind of the main, even though they did sing, they worshiped, they even played instruments and such, kind of the main stereotypical culture form of worship was offering sacrifices to God. You see this all throughout um, the Old Testament, especially. And we did this in the presence of God or at, by the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if we look at 2 Samuel 6, going down some to about verse 13, and we'll start at verse 14 on the screen. But in verse 13, it says, When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened calf. So in other words, he's taking probably a long journey. I don't know how far it was, but they're carrying this giant box with them. And every six steps, they're stopping and worshiping the Lord. This is just how um, excited and meaningful this was to David. And we see that even clearer starting in verse 14. We'll have this on the screen. It says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. First, this linen ephod. Basically, this was the undergarments, okay? So half naked, David is dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Verse 15, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts 
in sound of trumpets. David had a heart for worship. And I don't know what exactly what it means that David was dancing and worshiping with all of his might, but you know his whole heart is looking to God, giving him everything. What does it mean for us to worship with all of our might? I want to talk about a little bit of some non-essentials, first of all. We look and we have different traditions in the Christian church about worship. You know, and you may have even been a part of or know of some like non-instrumental churches. And they believe that when we sing, we want to do it with just our voices and not have, you know, a band with us. And different reasons for that belief and such. But I just want to point out that that's okay. You know, that is them pointing their heart to God in the way that they know best to worship God with all of their might. We, all, we often talk about, well, which songs do we sing? You know, what style of music, you know, do we sing? And, of course, so many different opinions and such with that. And I just want to bring up one uh, thing that kind of changed my heart uh, towards kind of this topic and I was talking with Tony Twist, who's the president of TCM, the missions organization I work for. And I don't know how, but we got on this topic and we were talking about different worship styles and different worship songs and such. And um, he's of the background and tradition that his, his favorite songs are the old hymns and such. And, but he goes to a church that they don't sing any hymns at all. And he says, you know what? I feel like if I'm not able to worship God with any type of music, then it's really more of a matter of my heart. And I, had, I didn't have tons of opinions and such, but since I've been thinking about that, I'm like, that's right. It's all back to your heart. It doesn't matter where you are, what kind of music, if you're singing music, if you've got an eight-piece drum set behind the, the worship artist, it doesn't matter. It's singing to the Lord with all your might. Then we come and talk about the, the quality, you know, of music. I remember I spent a year in Arizona at a very large church there, and the worship time during the service, the, the music and the production, I mean, it was incredible. You walk into the auditorium, and it's like you're turning on, you know, K-Love, or you're at a Hillsong concert or something. They were literally professional musicians that have came out of that world and were here to lead the church. And then shortly after that, I was back in Indiana with TCM, and I was preaching at a small church in southern Indiana. And I remember sitting there in that worship ex experience during the service. Uh, they had a small band up on stage, and the actual music, the production side of the worship, was probably the exact opposite. The, the music portion was, was terrible. There's no, there's no way to, there's no better, there's no nice way to say it. And I just remember halfway through one of the songs, looking at the woman leading worship, and you could just tell she was giving everything she had singing this song. Did not sound very good, but she was giving everything. And you could just tell that she was worshiping with all her might. And I remember just being so convicted in that moment and thinking, I wasn't singing, I was just kind of like dumbstruck watching and thinking, wow, I know for a fact God is looking down just with the biggest smile. 
So when we talk about all of these different things, I want to just point to one other scripture, and I don't even have it on the screen, but in Isaiah 64, 6, it's talking about us compared to the perfection of God. And he says, even our most righteous acts are like filthy rags. This word for filthy rags is like a used minstrel cloths. Okay, say no more there. The point is, when we compare ourselves to the perfection of God, even our most righteous acts, even our best songs, even our best deeds that we do for the Lord, those acts, those songs, those singing, those things in and of themselves are like dirty rags compared to the righteousness of God. So it begs the question, like, why, why even try? <laughs> If even our very best thing is like filthy rags to God, why do we try? Why do we practice? Why do we sing? Why do we do all of these things? And I just really believe, and you see all throughout the Bible, that the evidence shows that it is not about the acts themselves, but it's about where your heart is. And we're called to have a heart for worship. What does that mean to worship with all your might? If there's one thing to come away from today, uh, one question to ask yourself, I want it to be that. It might not be singing. In, in fact, we know that as God created us as holistic beings, so much more than just our brains, so much more than just logic. And, and we understand that because we see people, artists create beautiful paintings. And you know that this painting expresses itself in a way than just describing it ever could. We can tell stories, but we see how beautiful and moving it can be when it's put to music and drama in a performance. And we see these beautiful acts of art because we know we're so much more than just our brains. Why do we come and sing? Why don't we just stand here and read, you know, the words of the song and just fully declare that to the Lord? Because we're more than just our brains and we're whole beings. And so what does it mean to worship the Lord with all your might? We're going to sing a song called We Praise You. And we love this song because it is one that's just declaring praise to the Lord. I think of David when he was dancing undignified before the Lord and saying, I don't care what other people think about me. I don't care what they say. If I look like a fool, I, it is God who made me king. It is God who I serve. And I'm gonna do everything only for him. So I just encourage you as we're singing these songs and such, if you wanna, you wanna raise your hands, raise your hands. I don't want everybody to sing in the top of their voice. It doesn't matter if you sound like you're the winner of the voice or you sound like a wounded animal. The point is we're directing our hearts towards God and worshiping him with all his might. So let's sing this next song. I cannot imagine that pain of searing loss from a God sending his son down to die for people who didn't deserve it. That same searing loss experienced from Jesus, too. Matthew 27, again, towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when it's talking about the death of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 46, it says, About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? Traditionally, the, the theology behind this passage, which I believe is, is so true, this, in this verse in the song where it says, the father turns his face away. Imagine Jesus living his entire life, a perfect union, or a perfect human who has this communion with God his whole life, experiencing the presence of the father in the way that probably no other human ever, human ever has. And there on the cross, in the midst of his worst anguish and pain, also experiencing the loss of his father, no longer being able to look because of the weight of the world, the sin of every human who was and is yet to be born on the shoulders of Jesus. And for the first time in his life, experiencing that separation from God. If you look in your Bible here, Matthew 27, verse 46, after it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll see a footnote. Tip of the day, when you're reading your Bible, read your footnotes. Mine is the letter B. I go down, I see B. It says, Psalm 22, verse one. Flip to Psalm 22 if you have your Bibles with you. Absolutely believe there's an ulterior motive that Jesus has when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, which just so happens to be a Psalm of David written hundreds of years before. And now it's important to know that in this time, or the Bible, the Old Testament, it didn't have chapters or verse numbers. They were just big chunks of scripture. So in the Jewish tradition, when the students would come and listen to the, the rabbi, the teacher, they, a lot of scripture memorization they would do. So how did you tell somebody what scripture to recite? Well, if you don't have chapter numbers and such, the teacher, the rabbi, would just say the first line of a section of scripture. And then the students would know, oh, okay, that's the scripture that he wants us to recite. And then they would go on and finish by reciting the rest of that passage. So the rabbi would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the students would say, oh, that's the beginning of Genesis. They would go and they say, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and finish the chapter. So here Jesus is on the cross, about to breathe his last breath. And he, for those around him, because it wasn't just the Roman soldiers, I sometimes forget that Jesus' mother was there, his brother was there. Probably many of his other followers were there mourning and seeing this all happen. And their attention is taken to Psalm 22, where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm not gonna read this whole chapter, but I encourage you to do this later. But on the screen, we have some verses up here. See verse seven, it says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their, he shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. Sound familiar, what was happening at the cross? Continuing on, the, these individuals just saw Jesus ask for his dr a drink because his mouth was so dry. Verse 15, it says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. 
verse 16, dogs surround me. Dogs, by the way, the same word they use for Gentiles, so the Romans that are around him in that moment. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Those followers of Jesus there that day watching him die, they hear the beginning of Psalm 22 and begin, in my, in my mind, I believe they begin reciting, maybe even out loud and seeing these prophecies written hundreds of years earlier by David being fulfilled before their eyes. And what amazes me more than anything else is that these aren't just prophecies of his death. It continues on. I'm just gonna read here, verse 27. If you have your Bibles in front of you, look right here. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. See, Psalm 22 doesn't, doesn't just talk about his death. And as we come to communion, we don't just remember his death in the way of the world and the sin upon his shoulders, but we remember why he died and how he raised to life again. And somehow I think Jesus was trying to encourage those around him to say, don't fear, you can boast in my death, but you also can boast in my resurrection because here today it is finished and I have done it. Father, as we come to this time of communion, we are reminded of this terrible and this beautiful truth that you not only died, but you resurrected from the grave, reversing death so that we may have life. So Lord, we do boast in you. We boast not in ourselves because there is nothing that we can do that would ever amount to what you have done for us. And Lord, we look to you as we take communion this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Sing this last verse with me. I will not boast in anything. No gift, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His 
burdens have paid my ransom. Well, at this time, I'd like to pray, and then you will be free to go to the tables around the room. Take the cup back to your seat and have communion. Also, just draw in your attention, our worship continues through our offering. The offering that we give each week, it's a continuation of the worship that we bring to God. So let's pray, Father God, as we continue to worship you this morning, God, we bring special focus and our attention to what took place on the cross for that gift of sacrifice, the words that we just lifted up to you together. God, those words so descriptive in their meaning. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice, your gift to us all. We thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's take communion together. So at this time, I know we've been sitting just for a little bit, but I would like to invite you to stand with us. There's a beautiful song that reminds us of where God is, our good, good Father. I know it has a little bit of age to it, but it's just a beautiful description to the song. It sets our mind and our eyes where they need to be.
tender whisper of love in the dead of night and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone you're a good good father it's who you are it's who you are it's who you are and I'm loved by you it's who I am it's who I am it's who I am and I've seen many searching for answers far and wide but I what we need before we say a word you're a good good father to you are to you are to you are and I'm loved by you it's who I am it's who I am it's who I am
And uh, in 2006, Times Magazine had an article about him where he said, Chris Tomlin is probably the most sung artist anywhere. And out of anybody who's able to create a song and beautifully weave words and complexities in the song together and just to make this masterpiece of a worship song, it'd be him. He'd be the most qualified person to do it. But he chooses to take this song where the words are literally, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. This, of course, isn't the only worship song that we might come to where things just repeat, you know, over and over again. And we might have the tendency to say, okay, you know, we get it. All right, let's go on to the next verse. Let's, let's continue on with the song. And if you find yourself doing that, I just encourage you to lean in to that repetition. Sing those simple truths over and over again. Just as Chris Tomlin, as his faith continues to grow deeper, and I, I see this too, as my faith grows deeper, it just becomes simpler too. And it's those simple truths that you say and you read the Bible over and over again, it becomes renewed and renewed again because he calls you deeper and deeper and deeper, even with the same things, until you experience this, this love that is undeniable. He calls you deeper and you have a peace that it, it moves from here to here, so you can't even ex totally explain it anymore. He's calling you deeper. So as we finish this song, lean into this repetition and declare that he is a good, good father.